Welcome to Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we socially engineer ourselves into lives as people shaping the world of cybersecurity today. We want to find out a little bit about their journey, the events that have helped shape their career, and what still keeps them up at night. Today's guest is Terry Cutler, an award-winning cybersecurity expert, ethical hacker with over 30 years experience in the tech industry, specializing in penetration testing, social engineering, cybersecurity training, and instant response. Terry is the CEO and founder of Sciology Labs, founder of the Internet Safety University, a best-selling author with a number one best-selling book on Amazon, creator of the Fraudster mobile app that delivers real-time cybersecurity alerts, and among his many awards has been repeatedly named one of IFSEC Global's top 20 most influential people in cybersecurity. Now, I'm sure many of our listeners will already recognize Terry from his numerous media appearances, training engagements, and presentations. And with so many accomplishments, you might think it's quite difficult for me to describe Terry in one word. But fortunately, he's one step ahead of me already and has invented the term psychologist to cover what he does in the world of cybersecurity. So Terry, psychologist, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You make me feel old, 30 years and Jesus. I haven't slept in 40 years here. <laughs> Fantastic. Actually, before we dive in, that term psychologist, I actually really like that. Could you just talk a little bit about what that means to you and why you came up with that term to cover what you do? Sir, um, actually, it's a funny story how that term came up. So I, I, I'm a big fan of Bar Rescue. I don't know if you've ever seen this show. It's where John Taffer, this, this uh, turnaround expert, comes into these failing bars and you know brings them back to life kind of thing. And you have mixologists. You've got mixology and all these things. I'm like, well, it sounds like, you know, it's not, just a, it's not just a job. It's a science. I'm like, well, so is cybersecurity. So, so sciology should be a term. And then you've got a mixologist, but we also have a sciologist. So a psychologist is kind of, kind of like a biologist where we're looking at finding ways and solutions and tactics to, you know, thwart cyber criminals from getting into your network. So that's where the whole term psychology came in. And psychologists would be the expert that's implementing these, these solutions. And like all good stories, it began in a bar as well. So uh, I, I very much like that. <laughs> we've actually we've had a cyber anthropologist on the podcast previously, but psychologist is obviously a new one on us. And I believe you actually have a trademark for this term now. I do. I do. I got the trademark actually for uh, uh, Canada and US. So before you were a psychologist, where did your interest in technology first begin? So I've always been passionate about computers since the age of 10. I've always wondered how do these computers work? How do we take them apart, put them back together? And I'm like, you know what? I always want to have a job in, in, in using computers somehow, but I never knew where it was going to go. But you know, my mom used to work at Bell Canada, large uh, telecom company here in Canada. And um, she had a boss that uh, he, he always had the latest toys. Like back in the early 80s and 90s, this guy already had the 100-inch screen in his office doing teleconferencing that would cost like 20 grand per call back in the day. So I, I still keep in touch with him today. And um, I'm like, well, I want to be a boss one day too. I want to have a nice office and whatever. So fast forward a couple years later, the, one of the bigger companies I worked for was Novell. Let's remember Novell back in the day. So back in the 90s, um, they, they ran the networking world, so netware, group-wise, all these solutions. And I got the chance to work for, for them in 2001. So I got hired there. And then in 2003, four, so I started getting inspired by watching shows like CSI and 24. Remember Jack Bauer? I'm like, how does Colonial O'Brien break all these systems so fast? And that's when I found out there was a course called The Certified Ethical Hacker, where they teach you the same techniques that the bad guys used to break in, except using these skills for good. And... Um, I pleaded with my boss to send me. And um, so luckily I had the chance to fly to Washington 
and students from from the uh, the FBI, the CIA, and Navy SEALs were all in the class as well. So we got to share uh, how the hacks are happening and such. And you know, armed with that knowledge, I felt it was my duty to train the general public and business owners on how to keep safe online. So I'm like, okay, here's how to protect your identity. Here's here's all these 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 solutions and uh, freebies. And um, you know, fast forward to today, I started becoming like a, a go-to expert for most of the most of the media outlets across Canada. So I've started to do some more stuff in the U.S. now, like PBS. Um, but I have, um, but I've done almost every every show in, in Canada. Um, and then I, my name started circulating more and more, and I couldn't be in fifty places at once. I'm doing live events and such, and um, that's why I created a digital platform, a digital course called uh, Internet Safety University. So today has over thirty nine thousand students from one hundred fifty countries in it, and um, so I just upload the latest, you know threats and stuff to watch out for. Here's how to protect yourself as an individual. So I try to make sure that the, the content is all in layman's terms so everybody can understand it and follow along. So so luckily my media training is helping with that because if I go on television, I can't start talking techno babble. Right. So then no one's gonna understand it. I tune me right out. So I make sure I keep it at a level that everybody can understand. And um then I started getting weird, you know, comments where like, Terry, I don't have time to watch your videos. I don't have time to read your blogs. I don't have time to read your book. But if, but if I had to in my pocket, it would be so much easier. Like, oh my God, how the hell am I going to do that? Like, what value or what utility could I bring to the end user if I was able to build an app? So that app was actually seven years in the making. And um, so it released uh, two years ago now almost. So the app is called Fraudster, which is available both on Apple and Android. And it allows me to push my content through there to my community and... Um, you know, whenever the latest frauds and scams to watch out for appear, I push it through and and uh, hopefully they listen. I mean, that's, that's a fantastic whistle-stop tour of your career there. So we'll, we'll, we'll dig through some of those as we go through the podcasts. Going back to those early days when you first sort of transitioned from Novell and you were doing the Certified Ethical Hacker course, how seriously were people taking security then? Were there the dedicated cybersecurity functions that we see today and what were the threats you were kind of dealing with at the time? Yeah, there wasn't there wasn't much of that happening right now. It's like more like no one's gonna want to hack me and such. So um during my time at Novell, they had a platform or a solution called Sentinel, which is kind of like a sim solution that was that was you know protecting you. So I'm like, you know what? At, at their annual conference, they have an annual conference called Brainshare. So thousands of people show up. So that was my largest audience to present to. I presented to 2,500 people. I'm like, you know what? Let's make something really interesting. Let's do a cyber dog fight where I'll come in with like Metasploit Pro or, or Core Impact and start hacking on the network and set off alarms and see if your solution picks me up and block me before I steal the database with all the credit card data. So we did this live. And I can tell you that was the most stressful moments of my life because the moment that you have, you have 13 minutes to pull this off. If there's any hiccup in the demo, it's done. You're done. And when we, did, we ran a test and it actually didn't work like some like two hours before we went live. I'm like, oh my God, what did we just break? And oh. so, yeah, so that's how, once we showed that, then it was starting to get more toxic, like tell us more about these solutions, how these hackers break in. So that's how I built my presentation around is the insider secrets, the how and why the hackers are getting in. So I kind of go through the hacker methodology with real war stories of how they leverage information that, that companies and people post online and get used against them to break into their companies. And then I show them why um, they don't have the proper detection technology in place in order to hack you in there. Because as you know, right, the average hacker is in your system for 280 something days before being detected. 
And a lot of companies still think that, oh, I have a firewall encryption. That's all I need. I'm safe. But once they buy, bypass all this, they're in your network. Um, they don't have a proper detection technology in place. And worst case, they don't, and worst of all, they don't have a, a proper response plan to get the hacker out once he's been detected. Sure. I really like the, the fact that, you know, in those early 2000s, I'm guessing it would have been when you're doing that presentation, you're doing the hacking, they're trying to, you know, detect and defend against it. All these things that we're like hyping up today is the latest, greatest things of red team, blue team, purple team. You know, it's kind of, you were right at the the early stages of, of some of those activities and actually highlighting these things and making sure that they were, you know, in, at the time, some very big tech companies taken seriously and, and uh you know, really got some focus on there. So that's really encouraging. There was one exploit that occurred. So on, on Netflix, on Netware, it's a, um, it's a single user interface. You have the, the console, that's about it, right? And you, you never have multi-user multi console on this. And what happened was, I think it was back in 2007-ish, a, a, a researcher actually found a way to hack Netware. And they were going live at Black Hat. And the guys from Novell were there. And they didn't know how it was being done. So we had to quickly try to duplicate how that happened. We were able to pull it off. But um, even the developers were like, how on earth is this possible? So that's where we started showing them, hey, here's how to probably be code with security in mind. Here's how to test your software for, for vulnerabilities. So a lot of that sparked some interest. So I, I kind of got a reputation of being like, maybe not reckless, but more like um, trigger happy. People like, hey, you're, you're jumping all over us, you know, take it easy. Like, you know, cybersecurity is not that important, you know. Just, so, like, yeah, you can do this, you got to do that. Here's this, here's how to scan that. Like, okay, well, buddy, slow down. Uh, and one of the things, like, listening to you talk about these things, some of the things you've gone on to do, uh, you know, sometimes people just want to sit and stay on the offensive and pen testing side. But you've obviously made a decision in your career that you want to do a lot of knowledge sharing. You want to help people build defenses as well as do the attacking side of it. What is it that's interested you about like taking on such diverse areas in cybersecurity? My biggest challenge in cybersecurity is disseminating it to people who don't care. It's where like, you know, I'm, I've known small fish, no one's going to want to hack me. Cybersecurity is too dry, it's too boring. I don't care about this stuff. So luckily in 2013, I started getting into internet marketing. So I started looking at who are the leaders in this thing and uh, took some training from them. So it shows you how to implement storytelling into these things, make it edutaining. So it has to be edu educating and entertainment at the same time. So you got to throw in some real core war stories that might relate to the person. And you don't want to come off as salesy, right? But if you integrate, here's, here's what happened to Johnny over here. He did this, 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 this. But you know that this guy didn't do that too. So it's kind of relatable to what he's doing. And then, you know, it's learning, learning, uh, it's all part of the social engineering. <laughs> well, the, the education and the entertainment side of things. One of the things I've, I've seen you do, which I, I found really engaging, was you were demonstrating how attackers think and how attackers trick you by using close-up magic. Is, is that something you learned to demonstrate cybersecurity or was like close-up magic and magic tricks always an interest of yours? I mean, I was always, always a fan of Dave Copperfield, right? And I went to see him live and uh, I got to see this like, how on earth? But... I started studying up close magic back in, oh gosh, 2015-ish. So like I could do up close cartridge, like I'll be up right up in your face and, and show you the trick and, and it's deceiving. I'm like, well, just like, just like most, most uh, uh, companies, they don't know how, they don't have a clue how the hacker got in. So I kind of like linked in the magic into, into the storytelling piece. 
Maybe you could actually, because for the listeners who haven't seen some of these presentations, maybe you could just give us a brief summary of why magic and hackers go together so well in the, in the narrative. Well, it's because they don't understand how the trick is done. But then once you show them the trick, they're like, that's it? <laughs> a lot of times, like I'll, I'll show them a trick. Like, let's say the trick cost me a couple hundred dollars to purchase. But when you really like do your sleight of hand and your and your got your technique down so flawless that people like they're like right up in your face. They're like, how is this possible? And like, oh, you just did this. What? And then and then the whole trick is ruined for them after this. Because now they're gonna see it. every time they see this trick done by other magicians, like, oh, I know how he did that. You're not supposed to tell your secrets, but you know, as the ethical hacker, you have to like kind of like share how it's done. Yeah. That Wizard of Oz moment where you peel back the curtain and suddenly actually you see the person behind the machine, the workings, and understand, okay, that's how the threat's targeted me. That, I think that's a really nice take on, on some of the challenges and just trying to get people to, like you say, engage when people don't care. They think it's something that they don't understand, they can't stop. And when you peel back that curtain, they can suddenly feel like they can achieve something dealing with those threats. And then... You've, you've gone on to, you know, found your own uh, consultancy company, you've written books, you do your media appearances. What drove you to do this on your own rather than kind of staying on a big company like Novell or, you know, joining a big consultancy practice? Um, I started learning very early on how brand building works. So how to be an authority in your niche. And um, these people started contacting me directly all the time. I'm like, you know what, if I don't need the big boys. I don't need people telling me what to do. I can kind of do this on my own. Um, you know, back in 2015, uh, I had another company called Digital Locksmith, which was a, which was a failure because I learned my lesson. Of, I went to business with the wrong people and a con and whatever. And then I had to, you know, it turned out really bad. So then I worked to work for a private investigation firm, kind of recharge my batteries, but I understood how uh, cybercrime works on that site too, because a lot of people are being frauded. But they suspect it's that one person, it's their neighbor, or it's their their other half that's hacking them. And then how do you uncover the crime with digital forensics and all these things? And same thing was happening there. People were always coming to me all the time. Like, you know what? I'm just going to go back at it on my own with no other partners, nothing. I'd be doing the solo, and uh, it's been going up and up ever since. And was that investigation side part of the reason you got into the world of social engineering and, and looking at the physical pen testing and that kind of thing from that? investigation and surveillance perspective some of it um i was already doing that prior but um it, it, it kind of like gave me some extra tools uh, uh more more ideas to think about so for example let's let's do a real example we um a client called us up and they suspected that one of their employees was frauding the company and they didn't know how they were doing it because what happened is they would set out let's say a quote for a for a service and then the, the, the client who's good friends with the owner of the first company is like, man, I just received almost an identical quote, which is like $10 difference. And how is this possible? And then they found out that, that maybe somebody inside was leaking because one employee could be making, let's say, $40,000 a year, but now he's, he's got the Corvette. He's got, a, he's got a condo in Florida. You know, stuff didn't match up. But you can't just deploy spy software onto one employee's computer. Right to make it more legit, you got to deploy like on the whole team. But you know you're t you're targeting this one guy, and you can see what what he's doing on his screen all day, uh, how he's creating the fake invoices. So we're able to capture all this and then take him to court. Got it. And I know our, our listeners are you know are big fans of when we start talking about some of these engagements and the specifics, so especially physical security engagements. We always get the best feedback around that. So 
I've got to ask you about the time you managed to lock some employees out of their own break room. Yeah, <laughs> that was a that was a really cool story. So um, I was hired to do a test on a retail company. And um, so I said, okay. So I walked into one of their outlets. I looked for one of the least looking paid employees that was stocking the shelves. I said, hey, I'm, for, I'm, I'm from IT. I'm doing an upgrade on your system. Can you let me into the server room? And the server room was in the back where the lunchroom area was. And so he brings me there. I see where I'm in the right place. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go for lunch. I'm going to come back with my colleagues who are also ethical hackers and we're going to finish this upgrade. No problem. So we come back about an hour later, go see the same guy. And I said, okay, we're here to do a, to finish the upgrade. And he hands me the key. But he never asked me who I am, what I'm doing there. So when we were in the back, we, uh, we had all our equipment on all the lunchroom tables. So the employees couldn't even have lunch in there. And not one single person asked us what we're doing there or who we work for. We didn't have identification on us. And um, within three hours, we compromised the whole company from that switch. And not only that, we were able to clone our key cards. We're sort of even able to upgrade our key cards to, uh, to admin level, which means that when they set us up a conference room in the main office, we were able to upgrade our pass to the presidential's conference room. So when they came to see us, like, where are you? Like, we're in the conference room. They're like, no, I'm in your conference room. There's nobody here. Uh, so we're sitting in your CEO's conference room. <laughs> like, how the hell did you do that? And um, later, I think next day, when we were venturing back into their office. They had pictures of us because we took a selfie. It was so crazy. We send, took a selfie, sent it to the management. And they printed it out, but they put on top of it, this is why you have to be aware of hackers. So it was, that, was a, that, was what, that was a cool story. With the uh, the thing that you started off the story saying, you, you basically look for the the employee who maybe was the lowest paid, the most undervalued, and and they effectively gave you the key in the end. How can actually how can a retail organization start to make employees care more about these things and defend against those kind of attacks? That that's where all the awareness training comes in. So you know that's what this specific way I talk about in Internet Safety University. So that's so the biggest difference between ISU let's call it ISU uh, compared to no before and all these other uh, great awareness training stuff is that the complaints we're getting today is that I can't use this knowledge at home. I wish I can, you know, learn how to protect my Facebook, protect my Instagram. You know, how do I know if my home computer is hacked? How do I know what a phishing email is? It, it doesn't deep dive enough into the individual's knowledge. Don't, in the training course, it'll say, okay, make sure you create a strong password and make sure you turn on two-step verification. Uh, okay, but how do you do that? It's not, it's not, it doesn't have no depth. So that's what ISU focuses on. It's what to look out for. It's things like if, if you have somebody come in your office and he's got no badge, you need to stop him and ask him for identification or a business card or something. So all those, all that, those knowledge I got from, from life, real life experiences, I, I dropped that into the course so people can follow along and take action on it. That's a really interesting approach. So you're saying that employees, rather than just kind of being told, don't do this, don't do that, follow this process. Actually, if they feel like they're getting some knowledge and skills out of it that they can use in their employment, but also in their personal lives as well to make them and their family more secure, they'll be more engaged with it and more likely to, to follow through on those things. Exactly. Yeah. And again, you need to keep it edutaining because, you know, they're going to want to go watch, you know, Desperate Housewives or whatever, these other shows on Netflix, right? So you guys, you got you to gotta tailor the, the, the course to why they should take it seriously. Yeah, I mean, it explains a lot because when I was, I was doing my research for this, I was looking at the language and the way you pitch your services and your experience and the, the, the kind of products you offer. 
And when I look at a lot of security practices, they're so heavily focused on, you know, it's enterprise grade, military grade solutions, and it's just focused on this, you know, big corporate market. And actually, I've, I've kind of looked at your content, and you're just as comfortable talking about gift card scams and people keeping their families safe as you are talking about enterprise breaches and offering virtual CISO services. So that now I get an understanding for that that motivation on it's about engaging with people, it's about helping them, and that you know the rising tide lifts all boats. So I like a perfect example. So with another situation we did about integrate enterprise great stuff, they they had a they had a, a sock solution that was brought in from a large uh, vendor. And um, we're like, well, how do you know it's working? Like, we don't. So we came in with what's called an adversarial emulation test. It's where we come in with specialized scripts and the tactics. tactics. And um, the purpose of this test is to purposely set off alarms to see if the administrators are getting the proper alerts. And um, we, we hacked the whole system and all the vendors saw was Kali Linux got updated. Because they relied on logs and logs lie, logs get delayed. And you know, ours like for a solution like ours, which which uses full packet capture, um, packets don't lie, as you know. So they 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 we had to we had to kind of like educate the vendor on how to improve their software. And they're like a billion dollar company. That's a that's a nice example. In fact, one of the um things, so again, coming up in the research that Many of our audience will be familiar with kind of standard pen test. A company tasks someone like yourself to ethical hackers to hack in from the outside. It's often by exploiting public vulnerabilities or sending phishing emails. But I believe you've been known to take more creative approaches when needed. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you hack into a company via their restrooms. <laughs> okay. So so IFSEC Global, when they, um, they first interviewed me back in 2016, I believe it was, they're like, what's your, fa- what's your most favorite story? So at the time, that was my favorite. It's where we got hired to hack into a company from the outside and just couldn't do it. It was Fort Knox. I said, screw it. I'm going over there. So I dressed casually and I drove up to their office, walked up to the receptionist. I said, I feel really embarrassed. May I please use your washroom? They've been driving all day, got the big gulp drink. I promise it'll never happen again. But the problem was, was the bathroom was behind the counter. So she had to buzz me through. And luckily she said, make it quick. And she buzzed me in. And while I was in there, I left two USB keys in the stalls. And walked out and I thanked her. And about two hours later, a curious employee was like, oh, what's this? And plugged it in. And uh, it, at the time, it, Auto Run was still active. So Auto Run um, enabled my software to allow me through the back door. Fantastic. I mean, you've, you've, you know, we've heard of these stories of people scattering them in the car parks before and trying to leave them at nearby bars and things like that or uh, adding labels on them that say payroll, but I've never come across someone actually leaving them in, in, the, in the actual bathroom. So uh, congratulations on, on, on making that one work. And um, But the new one, the new tactics now, you mentioned I do put uh, payroll on some of the stuff, you know, 2021 payroll or something like that. Yeah, well, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because there's, there's like a, a double benefit that not only is the employee more likely to engage with the, the thing, plug it in and click it, but they're also less likely to report to anyone that they've actually done it in the first place so i guess a lot of your tactics revolve around things like that to try and get gain complicity from the employees whilst also making sure that your cover isn't blown is that a fine balance to walk it is so a lot of folks like um so specifically excel you can enable macros and you know how you load up excel you get that banner right away you want to enable macros so when people turn that on and they look at the stuff it sends off a trigger to us so when people say i never turned this on like Liar, <laughs> you're your proof that you did it. And that's how, as you know, that's how, that's how fileless malware is getting in, right? 
people are downloading attachments and the antivirus or whatever solution they're using scans it. They're like, oh, no threat. The moment they enable macros, the app will, like Excel or Word, will go and pull down the malicious uh, uh, content and, and run. And if you don't have EDR on your systems, it's not going to block the process properly. So... Yeah, you mentioned like obviously there's the USB auto run that kind of Microsoft dealt with eventually, and then macros in in documents, and that we're slowly seeing. I mean, there's going to be a long tail of that's going to work for a long time, but we're slowly seeing that like the vendors like Microsoft getting smarter and and blocking some of those things running by default. Are there any interesting new techniques, new avenues that you think will that will still be very effective in, in the near future? Uh, well, now we're starting to see more AI. Right, we're starting to see AI starting to get really, really, really great at crafting emails. Um, but we're also seeing legitimate companies getting hacked into first. And what they're doing is they're, they're compromising their email server and emailing other companies uh, with phishing emails. So when you go and trace back, they're like, well, this is a legit email. This is a real email. Like, and they click on the link they're not supposed to, and then they get infected. Yeah, so it's that that supply chain that even if you have very good security, they can target you. In fact, very similar to if we look at like things like the target breach, you know, casting our, our mind back where it was a small heating ventilation supply who was compromised. They had access into a network. They were able to do things. And yeah, more and more of that. That's something I bring up every during my presentation all the time is like, look, this, the, the, the techniques and the software solutions right today are somewhere between not working and barely working at all. But don't take my word for it. You know, Verizon data breach reports come out every year and they always talk about how it's an unrelated third party reporting a breach for you. So in this example here of this email, uh, company A didn't know their email server was hacked. And when they tried to hack company B, they trace it back to company A and say, by the way, buddy, you, your system's compromised. Their own systems even detect it. No, it, it definitely is. And, and one of the things, obviously, that we've mentioned is is phishing. And phishing is one of those challenges that never seems to go away. You know, we, we're doing our best to educate employees, and they're probably fairly well drilled now in not sending money to members of obscure royal families needing assistance and, you know, various other scams that people have got very wise to, the email filters have got better at blocking. But targeted phishing campaigns are still highly effective, either, you know, from an anonymous source, or like you say, maybe even through a compromised supply chain attack. So in your experience, how do you go about tailoring a phishing campaign to ensure it's effective and doesn't trigger any alarms? Okay. So one way I, I, I actually did this a year or two ago uh, when I was testing an employee, um, I, I, I trolled his social media. I got to see what he's doing. And I noticed that he was at a certain event and I could have my fake persona email him saying, Hey, I noticed you're at such and such event. Here is my link to my photos from the year before, if you're interested. So there's no urgency, there's all, it's very relaxed. And they clicked on it. And you know, it's not your typical Viagra email, right? So they, 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 they fell for it and they clicked it. It allowed me to compromise the browser and I was able to track out the passwords from it and eventually got access to the system, turn on the camera, turn on the microphone, see us documents. And what about when you're looking at uh, organizations? One of the things I've heard people talk about in the past is, looking for the software and the tools that you use. So trolling LinkedIn and going, okay, these are the HR systems they're going to use. These are the time tracking systems they're using. Is, is that the kind of investigation you're doing into companies to, to work out how to better target them? Yep. So I actually did a live presentation at a finance conference years ago. And what happened was somebody tweeted about the event a couple of nights before. I said, oh my God, I'm going to make this presentation ultra realistic. I'm going to show the audience how I can target somebody online from what they just posted 
and possibly get access to their, their password. So they tweeted about the night before. So you clicked on her profile. It doesn't give you much information, but she had a website. Then you clicked on her website, revealed her name and the company she works at. So then I would go to LinkedIn to find out who this person is. And I see that, oh, they used to work at this company, now works for another company. So I'm like, okay, never heard of it. So I did a search, like, you know, site colon, colon, the name of the company, space, login. And what I just did was I asked Google, show me every single web page that belongs to this company with the word login somewhere in it. And it revealed a time management solution. So I said, okay, here, here's how I'm going to do this. I'm going to send her an email, look, make it look like it came from her time management system, um, except it'll be fake. So I did that and, you know, obviously cloned the uh, time, time system uh, website, sent it to her. And uh, she opened it up, submitted her credentials. And uh, I was able to log in. So there was no two-step verification on very much on those systems back then. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic example. And obviously there's, you know, many tools out there now, even with the two-step verification where actually just getting someone to go through that and having that, you can have these proxies, these evil Nginx things that can capture one-time tokens and some of these less secure forms of MFA. So those campaigns, are, even with MFA, uh, weak MFA are still highly effective. Well, we're starting to see that now, right? Like a couple of executives at the large companies just got breached uh, because they still have old login methods. And uh, they need to start looking at these things. People are still running SMB v1. So when I get in there, I can compromise the box, do pass the hash attacks, log in as people without ever knowing what their passwords are. Yeah, I mean, so many of these things in security, there's just such a long tail that, you know, even if you are in 90% of your systems up, updated and got the best practices, it only takes that, that 10% to be unpatched, vulnerable. Uh, and, the, you know, with MFA especially, we talk about the importance of FIDO2 and non-fishable tokens, but not all systems support them still. There's still legacy systems that people are going to need to otherwise to connect to. In that example you just brought up, that's exactly how I compromised a company years ago. They, they had all their systems patched up. It was rock solid, but they had one system that was purposely unpatched for backward compatibility during their testing. It was a testing system. But when I compromised that one box, it was the same administrator accounts for all the rest. So I was able to pass the hash to the other 20 or so third servers that they had. Yeah, I mean, we're recording this a week or so after the reports of Midnight Blizzard attacking Microsoft. Again, a test system there account didn't have MFA in, 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 you know, set up because it was a test system, a test account, and yet that led to them co corporate executives' emails being accessed. So these things come back to bite people time and time again. Um, just shifting on to one of the things I mentioned at the start, that you've had a number one Amazon bestselling book, Insider Secrets to Internet Safety, Advice from a Professional Hacker. What inspired you to sit down and, and take the time to write that book? I didn't want to. So what happened was my... Um, my editor was like, dude, you're going to write a book. I'm like, why on earth would I write a book when I'm using all these digital content forms? And if I write the book, it's going to be obsolete by the time it hits the shelf. It makes no sense. And like, no, 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 you need to get a book. So then, you know, a year or so went by and I noticed that the basics were still not being put in place by either companies or individuals. I'm like, all right, so let's write a book that has, here's how to master the basics. And... Um, yeah, that book became Amazon bestseller like even a week later. And it's still on the bestseller list today, actually. Fantastic. And yeah. could you give us maybe what your favorite uh, insider secret to internet safety is? Oh, definitely. It's, a, it's, it's around passwords and the 2FA. Um, a lot of people create such lousy passwords. So to create a strong password, you want to have a mixture of uppercase, lowercase, and symbols in it. But And to make a strong password, you want to have between uh, 16 and 25 characters long. That most people are like, are you, is this guy nuts? Like, how do you remember a password this long? 
But if you can think of song lyrics or phrases, it's going to help you. So in the example I often use is, okay, I, the simple phrase, I had a great day at work, 2024 exclamation point. Pretty simple. But if you remove the spacing, capitalize each letter of the word, that password alone will take about 10 years to break. And because we're here to up our game, if you replace the A's with an at symbol, the O's with a zero, that password will take 39 centuries to crack. But if you don't have two-step verification turned on, I'll be able to get access to the password hash and maybe pass the hash and log into the accounts. And not only that, there's another scheme that's happening now. And this happened to a live, uh, one of my live shows I had a guest on. She had two-step verification turned on all of her accounts except for one, her Hotmail. And her Hotmail was like, why do I need to secure this account? I just get junk mail here. But they compromised it because her password leaked on the dark web. And when they got access to it, they saw all of her security questions and the answers to them. Then they managed to switch her phone provider from Telus to Bell. And when they did that, all of her two-step verification tokens went along to this, the attacker's phone. And with that access, they got access to their bank account. They drained it. They bought stuff on Amazon and, and PayPal. Um, and then they do this on a Friday night after 5 p.m., which means that they had to wait till next business day to go into the bank to start taking action on their accounts. And she was screaming at them, like, dude, they're in my account now. Like, do something. And yeah, she said that this is one of the most frustrating experiences of her life. It's a, a great example there. And, it, you know, these things that people often fail to think about, and, you know, like we just mentioned, the weak MFA, the, you think you've got the second factor enabled, but actually other ways to manipulate it, other ways to, you know, the push notification fatigue, all these things that happen to people and they, they don't realize it's, it's potentially hackable or part of an attack. There's another part of, of that piece is that one thing you can do is you can call up your phone provider and activate port protection. What this means is that whenever you want to switch providers, you have to show up in person with identification now versus it's off by default, where because now you can just switch providers like almost over the phone kind of thing. And uh, so when you have that feature turned on, now, you have, now it makes it harder for the hackers to just compromise your phone. Fantastic advice. Yeah, definitely. It's something that people should look at. And it's often these things where we've traded off usability for security, right? You know, make people's lives easier. They can swap between network providers, but then at the same time, the, the attackers can also make use of those. So trading off security and usability, which is a tale almost as old as uh, technology itself. Uh, one of the other things that jumped out to me is that you'd been appointed to the National Council of uh, the Canadian Cybersecurity Alliance. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved in that and, and what you're trying to achieve there at the Alliance? Yeah, well, the Alliance is, is not functional today, but um, the, the goal of the Alliance was to have, I think it was a body of 12 people on there where um, we would share our knowledge to help companies get protected more. Now, we also had other company, other groups that were doing this as well, like CCTX that were like the threat exchange. And um, so we're like, you know, we're not going to duplicate their work. So that's part of the piece that the why that that project did work well. But I am working with other organizations like the Canadian Cybersecurity Forum, these other groups. So we're we're just putting out content that will help educate um, either IT staff or business owners on the latest threats to watch out for and solutions to to do this. That's great, and it, you know it's definitely a, a worthwhile thing there, and it's something that obviously you've gone on to do through various other forums as well through your businesses through your your media outreach there just making sure that that knowledge is shared and that people are, are working better together if if someone was interested in the kind of things you're doing getting out there and taking what like you say people often see as magic tricks like things that they just can't understand these threats that are out there and going out there and explaining them to you know the man on the street their family their friends educating people what advice would you give to someone who wants to start sharing their security knowledge in a way that can really make a difference get started 
that simple as that. It's a lot of people that they're too, they're too scared to get started. They, they do, they care about perfection. So, um, like I'm, I'm guilty of that too. Like whenever I do my video appearances or like if I'm doing like content creation, it used to take me sometimes 30 takes. I'm like, oh, I didn't like the way my eye looked here. Or like not enough lighting, uh, whatever it is. At this point now, since COVID, scrappy is the new normal. So they don't care about, you know, you can have dirty laundry in the back. As long as your content and your information is good, it, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter as much. But you want to clean up your appearance as possible. You want to have a, have a good brand. Um, yeah, it's just get started. It's like turn the camera. Remember, you want to make sure you dumb it down. And now, thanks to ChatGPT, I wish this stuff existed back then. Uh, you can say, he, you can write, okay, act as a cybersecurity marketing expert. That, that's your prompt. And then you'd say, okay, here's what I'm trying to say, but can you dumb it down to so a five-year-old can understand what I just said here or a non-technical user? And they'll rephrase what you're about to say in a more layman's terms and kind of build on that and, and make your own version. No, that's fantastic. I think I was trying to remember the physicist with it, Feynman who said, you know, I want people to explain things to me like I'm a five-year-old. And uh, it is a very good, good way of doing it. And, you know, like when we've been talking, actually, one of the things that you're very good at and I've seen you do on the presentations like is just having analogies, having stories to tell around it that make sense. Like, you know, you're saying this is how this other company got hacked or this is how things happen in the world of magic. Now relate this idea and just tying onto concepts that people can really get a grasp on uh, to, to understand. In, in terms of that kind of education piece and, and getting out there, what are the things that you really wish you were able to get through to people more like you see scams repeating or attack patterns happening that you're like, oh, I just, people just aren't getting this at the moment. And I, I think this is going to be a real problem. They just don't believe it's going to happen to them. That's the biggest thing. They need to understand that everyone's a target. Everybody, everybody with an email address is a target. I had a, I had a client now that um, saw me present at an event uh, where I showed them how the insider secrets, how it all get, how it all happens. And then I get a call from them like two, three years later. I'm like, dude, like, what took you so long to call me? Like, well, we didn't know how to get started. Like, okay, well, wait a second. If this guy has that comment, there must be other people like that. So then I started building content around how to know if they're a potential target for a cyber criminal. And here's proof. Let's look here. Let's do this. Um, that's why on our website, there's a lot of free stuff. Like, for example, um, do you know what your attack surface is like from the outside? So we can pull information out of showdown.io. And for those that don't know what that is, it's, it's dubbed the world's most dangerous search engine. What it does is it scans everybody and their mother, finds vulnerabilities online, puts it in its database. So instead of us trying to scan you and, we, and not wait for permission and stuff from your legal department, we can actually pull the data right out of Shodan in a nice fancy report and show you from, from a point of view of a hacker what they see about you. And you have all these exposed end-of-life softwares. You've got IoT devices exposed. You have uh, remote access exposed. All these things you didn't know about uh, existed. I can, I can pull up passwords off the dark web. So my, the, the, the way we work is we build such massive value up front at no financial risk that it creates like recipro recipro reciprocity. So it's, not like it's, a, it's another trigger that says, wow, this, these guys helped me so much that um, I need to buy from these guys because they've educated me on the problem. These other vendors never did that. They're just trying to sell me stuff. So I, 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 we try to add so much value and depth into the relationship that a lot of times we, we win the business to over the billion dollar companies. And then in, in those companies, you know, you can obviously provide them with an assessment of through the showdown or other tools, what their maybe risk profile looks in. 
but maybe they're in that stage, like you said earlier, like they just don't know where to start. Are they, are they, are they like repeatable key steps that you'd say every company, even if it's a small mom and pop shop that just has a few computers connected to the internet, where they should start in terms of their cybersecurity program? Yeah. First thing we always do is start with an audit. Let's look at where you are, where you need to be, and where you should be. And, you know, some of the stuff could be very expensive. So we have to work with your budget. Um, but a lot of times, and this part is really getting on my skin right now, is that they're relying on their IT guy to tell them what to do. And IT is your family doctor, right? Would you ever ask your family doctor to perform laser eye surgery on you? And most people would say no. So we actually, this was the first time that uh, this happened a year or so ago. Um, this IT guy told management, you don't have to have antivirus on your exchange server. It's, it just slows things down. You don't need it. And a couple of months later, the guy got ransomware. And it was the first time we saw the IT guy get fired on a Zoom call. So yeah, that's why I need to understand that IT and cyber are two different fields, but we work together because we're going to find things wrong with the system, but it's going to be faster for the IT guy to implement because he's on the day-to-day. So we need each other. Yeah. And do you think they can be, do you think they have to be independent roles or can you have both? Could you have someone who can cover both? They've got to be independent. I think they should be different because um, we're seeing a lot of MSPs that are like, oh yeah, we offer cybersecurity too, but they don't know what they're talking about, unfortunately. And it's like, how can you be the same guy auditing you as the same guy fixing it? Okay. Degree of separation there. No, that, that's, yeah. that's interesting. And then in terms of, of your company, you know, obviously you're doing all these things, you're writing books, doing media appearances, growing a company. What's your vision for the company moving forward? Where do you want to be, you know, in well, in the next 30 years, perhaps? Where do you see it going? Retired on a beach with a margarita. <laughs> no, the um, awareness, awareness is, is never going to go away. The, the training piece. Um, it's just that the latest scams and frauds are, are getting much more sophisticated right now. It's it's never ending. So that's that's what's the beauty in our field is that the stuff is constant, never ending improvement. Um, we're going to see more outsourcing to our service, like our like our managed service, um, because we're seeing a lot of layoffs happening in the industry. So instead of hiring a, a cybersecurity expert for hundred thousand dollars a year, they you know they, they, they that person has to sleep, so he's not monitoring you twenty four seven. Whereas if you outsource to someone like us at like half the price, even. Uh, we have like 66 guys monitoring you to around the clock at a small business price. So they would come to folks like us to augment their their, their existing uh, cybersecurity. And uh, just as we start to get to the end of the podcast here, I'm curious what advice you would give that uh, young version of yourself looking at the uh, boss's big display screen in the, the, the conference room at, at Bell perhaps. Uh, what advice would you give him uh, about where to, to spend his time and what to do with his future? I would say follow your passion. Not something like your parents say, oh, go into cybersecurity. It's, they make a lot of money. If you're not passionate about this field, you're going to burn out drastically, really quick. Um, you got to find your passion. Um, if, if I'm going to dump on, on schools today, a lot, of comp- a lot of individuals I'm talking to, they want to become an ethical hacker, all this kind of stuff but their parents are making them go to university for three years. I'm like, buddy, you're going to be expired in three years. You need to start looking at the Sands Institute courses, EC Council, uh, CompTIA, like people that are specialized in this field that get you trained and certified in a quarter of the time. Yes, their stuff is expensive, but you, you need to have that specialized certification. And not just that, companies aren't necessarily looking for a diploma from your local university. 
If you want to go to another country and work, it's not recognized. But if you have a degree or a certification from EC Council or SAND, that's worldwide certification. You can go anywhere in the planet and they'll recognize you. So it's that convincing of the old guard, we'll say, where, you know, mom and dad, you don't need to send your kid to college. They can get the certification. So, but what's interesting is that like if I, like I dropped out of, I dropped out of, uh, out of college. So I have just a high school leaving diploma, but I went to specialized training after like, I, I want to learn just networking. That's where I learned Novell training and all this kind of stuff. But um, if I want to work with law enforcement, they didn't want to hire me full time. I don't even qualify because I don't have a bachelor's degree in something. I get a bachelor's degree in basket weaving, which is completely unrelated, and they'll hire me. I just need that bachelor's degree. So HR needs to like get up to date too with the latest uh, certification and such. No, it is, it is very interesting, actually. One of the things that's come up multiple times on the podcast with, when we talk to guests is like the good places to get started in the industry. And I don't think anyone's ever said, go and get a bachelor's degree. They've said, start in the help desk, start working in IT, like find out where the pain points are, find out where the bodies are buried in an organization, what things they're not dealing with. And then when you go into security side, you know exactly what you're targeting. You know exactly what the network should look like and, and you know, where the misconfigurations will be and who to target with things. So that, that's exactly it. You, you definitely need to start in help desk. You can't just go right to cyber and, and expect to get, get a home run there. Totally agree. Start in help desk. Volunteer as much as you can. A lot of people don't like to hear that word, volunteer for free. But uh, that's what's going to help you get your foot in the door, get testimonials from, from the people you worked with, and um, you know, build your brand. Brand building is very important in this, in this world now. Um, and are there any particular things when you're, you know, you've got, you said you're looking for people in your industry and people are coming to you. What kind of other qualities do you look for in candidates for your company? I'm definitely looking for passion. I want to see folks that are, that are hungry to learn more, not necessarily all about the money. The folks that don't even mention a dollar amount until I have to ask them for it is, is someone I look for all, all the time as well, too. Um, I want to see like if they like to dabble in, in, in technology, like that's all they're doing all day long is consuming knowledge and, and doing stuff, you know, like the, the tinkerers, the ha little mini hackers, we'll call them. Yeah. Do you have a home lab? Have you contributed to any GitHub repos? Anything like that is, uh, is always, I think, a good sign in this industry. Um, so as we, we wrap this one up, if you had one message you wanted to leave our listeners with, what would that be? I would, I would say get started. Find your passion. Go all in on it, 100%. Because now, like, like you know, I've, I'm a big fan of Gary Vaynerchuk. If you're passionate about the Smurfs, people are making fortune just talking about the Smurfs. So, you know, anything now, nowadays is possible. So find your passion, get started, share your knowledge, build your brand. And, you know, the more content you have, it becomes a library. It can be monetized. Lovely piece of advice there. And speaking of uh, brands and libraries and content, where can people find out more about you and the companies you run? Sure. I mean, the, the, the main central hub is terrycutler.com. Uh, from there, you can download the Fraudster app, which is available at, at fraudsterapp.com. Um, if you want to see Internet Safety University, a quick link is terrycutlerclass.com, which will redirect you there. Uh, but all roads lead to terrycutler.com. It's all about me, James. 
<laughs> well, that's fantastic. And, you know, we really appreciate having you on the podcast today, Terry. The things that your passion for the industry and making sure that, you know, people are educating them, whether it's the individuals, the family members, the large enterprise or the nation state, you know, you're clearly your passion for cybersecurity, education, ethical hacking, just getting people better in terms of security really shines through. So really appreciate everything you're doing. Really excited to see uh, what you get up to next and look forward to seeing you more in your many media appearances and conference presentations. I'm just getting started, James. Just the tip of the iceberg. That's what we like to hear. Uh, as always, thanks to super producer Ben and the team at Beyond Trust who make this podcast happen. This has been Adventures of Alice and Bob, and I've been James Maud. <laughs>